Welcome. We are going to continue our study through the book of 1 Peter. We've been going verse by verse throughout the whole book, and we're in chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7. If anyone needs a Bible, just raise their hand, and uh, George is up here. We'll bring one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. Raise it up high. George would love to bring you a Bible. As you're turning to 1 Peter chapter 3, I want to let you know that as we close this morning, I'm going to share a little bit about Russia and Ukraine and, and, and uh, how we can be praying and, and should be praying with what's going on over there. I, I thought about devoting a whole study to it, but I thought, no, let's keep going where we're at. But I do want to just talk about it a little bit. So I'm going to save that for the end of our study and maybe answer the question, does any of this have to do with biblical prophecy and what's going on in our world today? But before we get to that, we're going to pick up where we left off in the role of the husband and wife and the uh, husband and the wife found in First Peter chapter three, one through seven, and the subject of marriage. Marriage is what brought us here today. How's that, Emily? <laughs> Let's go ahead and read it, starting in verse one. Peter writes, "Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands." That even if some do not obey the word, they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives, when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. The title of my message this morning is Marriage God's Way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we could spend together in your word. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for giving us not only understanding every word, but application in our lives, that we can apply these truths to our lives, to our marriages, that as we leave this place, Lord, we're changed. We're not only drawn closer to you in our relationship with you, Lord, but we're drawn closer to each other in our relationship with each other. And Lord, and that's your desire for the church. We know that to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love each other, uh, Lord. And, and you, your word says by this, all men know that we are your disciples. And so, Lord, we ask, Lord, that as we study your word, you change us, you move in our hearts. We pray, Lord, if there's anyone here that is yet to surrender their life to you, they're not born again this morning, Lord, to do especially speak to their heart, help them to hear your truth and hear your word today and come to know you as Lord and Savior. Bless our time together, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Maybe you heard the story about three guys that were talking together, discussing the subject of marriage and the kind of control that a husband has in his marriage over his wife. And they were kind of boasting about how much control they had over their wives. Actually, two of them were doing the talking. One of them was just kind of watching and kind of listening quietly. And so the two finally turned to the one guy not talking and said, so what's up with you? Do you control your marriage or not? Do you have control over your wife? And he says, well... Just so you know, the other night she came crawling to me on her hands and knees. And they turned to him with wide-eyed wonder and said, Then what happened? To which he replied, Then she said, Get out from under the bed and fight like a man. (laughs) You know, when you start a study, 
With verse 1 of chapter 3, wives likewise be submissive to your own husbands. You never know what to expect. I mean, if you want to have a heated conversation among women, just bring up the word submission. Everybody has an opinion. They'll say things like, well, submission is simply not reasonable for modern thinking women today. Or submission in marriage is outdated. You know, it was from that culture at that time. I disagree. Because even though the Bible is written in a certain place and time, it represents unchanging truth, uncompromising truth, even on topics such as submission that makes us maybe feel a little bit uncomfortable. Because what we have for us laid out in God's Word is marriage God's way. Because when it comes to marriage, all we need to do is look to the one who wrote the book on marriage, God. It's He Himself who created marriage. And we need to get back to God's Word and find out what God's Word has to say on the subject. Now, with that said, I do believe the problem that we're seeing in many marriages today have much less to do with understanding the role of the husband and wife and more to do with the rebellion in the hearts of husbands and wives. The issue is not knowing what to do, but rather doing what we already know. It's not to read more books or to read or to spend some special intense counseling session that's needed, but rather men and women with hearts that are yielded to obey what God's word has already told us to do. It's a willingness to allow the Lord to mold and shape our marriages and to bring them into alignment with his word and with his heart and his will and his role for our lives. You see, success in in marriage is more than being with the right person. It's you being the right person. Marriage problems are 95% heart problems, and it's a heart that Peter deals with here in the section of Scripture on the subject of marriage. I've heard it said, marriage is when a man and a woman become one. The trouble starts when they try to decide which one. For that reason, I've divided our study up just into two points. Number one, the wife's responsibility towards her husband and the husband's responsibility towards his wife. First, the wife's responsibility towards her husband. Look at verses 1 and 2. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of the wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Perhaps you've heard of the woman at the speaker's uh, woman's club who was speaking and lecturing on marriage and asked the audience how many of uh, them wanted to mother their husbands. Well, one member in the back row raised her hand and, and she says, you want to mother your husband, the speaker said? Mother, the woman echoed. echoed. I thought you said smother. I, I misunderstood. <laughs> Verse 1 again. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands. Now, we need to understand something here. Peter's addressing marriages that are unequally yoked. Maybe you've never heard that term before. Sounds really weird to you, unequally yoked marriage. What is that? Like you don't cook your eggs evenly or something? Or it's just some bad yolk? Or your marriage is over easy? Or just plain scrambled? I don't know. I'll stop. But An unequally yoked marriage is a term that is used by Paul to the apostle when a believer is married to an unbeliever. They're married legally, they're married legitimately, but the believer is single spiritually. That yoke, you know, yoke is that that wooden device that, that held two oxen together. That yoke, that spiritual bond isn't together. It's an unequal yoke. I've heard it said, if a child of God marries a child of the devil, then the child of God is sure to have trouble with his father in law. Think about that. No one wants that. If you're a single Christian, choose your mate wisely. 
Now, because Christianity was spreading quickly in the early church, women were coming to Christ, but men weren't coming so quickly. And in that culture, at that time, whatever religious inclinations the husband had, the wife was expected to fall in the line with. So now, what was a Christian wife to do? She's in that relationship. It's volatile. Her husband is not a believer. She is. There's pressure from the state, from the community, and now from her husband. What should she do? Well, if the unbelieving husband is willing to stay with her, not abandon the marriage, how should she react? Should she dump him, that unbelieving husband, and go find the man of her dreams who's a Christian, free at last, free at last? Thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. No. Now, there's some that would say you should do that, but Peter says no. Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, says no. As hard as it is to hear, Peter says no to this. What you need to do, wives likewise be submissive to your own husbands. That's not what many women want to hear. They want to hear run, escape, get as far away as possible, or rebel, resist, fight back until he changes, but certainly not submit. Listen, Peter is telling us, he starts off with the word likewise. He's referring to what we already looked at in chapter 2. Just likewise, just as we're told to submit to those in authority over us in government, we're told to submit to our employers. God has something to say about submission in the home. Now let me say this first. God's plan for your marriage and for our lives in general is that of submission. It's to, it's to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ first and foremost. But then in a marriage relationship, it's submitting to one another in the fear of God. That's what Paul the Apostle says in Ephesians 5, 20 and 21. Says that we're to be giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Before a, a word is even spoken about the, the role of the husband and wife there in Ephesians 5, uh, we're told to submit to one another in the fear of God. Because there has to be this mutual submission. You don't hear that very often. Yeah, wives submit to your husbands. Yeah, that's right. But the Bible also teaches husbands are to submit to their wives. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. This is not to imply that a husband's submission to his wife relinquishes his responsibility of leadership in the home, but rather it explains what it's really about. You should be supporting one another in the reverence of God. Guys, you need to support your wife. You need to, to hold her up. Wives, you need to do the same for your husband. You need to be always ready, man, to meet her needs and to sacrifice your own desires to help them fulfill those needs. We must do this for each other. See, we're all submitting at some point. Wives are called to submit to the loving leadership of her husband, and husbands are to bow to the needs of their wives. It's not about superiority or inferiority. It's about sacrifice. It's about your mate. And most importantly, it's about imitating God and walking in love. Because it's a partnership. You, you two are in a partnership together with God. I've always loved Ecclesiastes 4.12. So one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand them, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. So submit to one another in the fear of God. Support one another in reverence for God. It's a mutual desire to align our hearts with God according to the roles that he has designed in the marriage relationship. Now, Peter does say here that wives specifically are to be submissive to their husbands. That word submissive is the Greek word hupotasso. It does not mean, man, to hoop your woman into submission and last word of submission. That's not what it means. It sounds like it, but it's not what it is. It's a military term. It means to rank under, which means hoopo, under, tasso, arrange. It's a military term. Submission has to do with order and authority. 
No, a man in the military, he joined the Marines, he's a private. He has to submit to that sergeant, to whatever he says within guidelines. He may be more intelligent than that sergeant. He may be a lot more intelligent. He may even hold degrees. But because of his position, he has to submit. That's what Peter's talking about here. Wives are to place themselves under the headship or leadership of her husband and allow her husband to lead. Now that means you're not questioning his every move and every decision. Oh, what are you, why are you doing that? What's going on there? That means you're willingly, lovingly giving your opinion but leaving the final decision to him. Now again, both partners are equal in value but have different roles. Women are not inferior to men. In fact, in my observation, that's just the opposite is true. Most women are smarter than most men. I tell you, it's true in my marriage. I married up. Listen, if survival of the fittest were actually true, women would be leading men around on dog leashes right now. But this is the order and the operation that God has appointed in the home and in the church that men are to lead and the women are to follow. And in adhering to this blueprint, they paint a wonderful picture of Christ's relationship with us, his church. Now, to get a a better understanding of this, let's look at at what submission is not. What does this not say? Five things I want to point out. First, this does not say that a wife is a slave of the husband. I I mean, the truth is a wife is never free of them when when she is submission to her husband. This is most seen in the description of God's ideal wife in Proverbs 31. Secondly, again, as I already pointed out, this does not say that the wife is inferior to the husband. I mean, think about this. Jesus was not inferior to Mary and Joseph, and yet the Scripture said that as a child, Jesus continued in subjection to them. Third thing, this does not say that the wife is never to open her mouth, never to have an opinion, and to never give advice. In fact, Proverbs 31.26 says, She opens her mouth with wisdom, and on her tongue is a law of kindness. Fourthly, this does not say the wife should do whatever her husband tells her to do. Colossians 3.18, Wives submit to your, to your own husband's as is fitting to the Lord. If your husband is asking or telling you to do anything that is ungodly or sinful, that's not fitting in the Lord. Don't do it. If your husband says, hey, hon, let's go out and get plastered tonight. Let's get drunk. It's not fitting to the Lord. You have the authority by God's word to say, no way, Jose. Even if his name isn't Jose. You, can just, just, you don't have to submit. If your husband is telling you to stay away from church, stay away from Bible study, you need to obey God rather than man. Finally, the fifth thing submission does not say, this does not say the wife should be submissive to every man. Peter says, be submissive to your own husband. See, this is about the marriage relationship, not some other relationship. Peter says, wives, place yourself under the headship or the leadership of your own husband and allow your husband to lead you. This is God's order of operation. Now, why is that important? It's important for salvation. Souls are at stake here. Because Peter goes on in verse 1 when he says, Be submissive because even if some do not obey the word, speaking of that unbelieving husband, they without a word may be won by the conduct of the wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Peter's saying here that even if your husband is a non-believer, that doesn't free you from the responsibilities you have as a wife. Your husband's actions don't excuse you of your calling and your responsibility to the Lord in that relationship. Why? Because salvation is on the line. I know of believers that get so discouraged waiting for their spouses to get saved. Oh, I've just been praying for him or her for, for such a long time. 
But just as God saved you while you were married, an unbeliever, so God can work in your spouse's life. And, and, and you are there to give testimony, both with your words and with your actions and by your example. And think about this. Your spouse is better off than you were when God saved you because now you're there and you can minister to them continually. But Peter here says, without a word they may be won to the Lord by the conduct of their wives. Now that doesn't mean you shouldn't share with your unbelieving spouse. Uh, just be careful not to go overboard. year of husbands getting up in the morning and their wife has put scripture verses and lipstick all over the mirror. You know, uh, oh, okay. He goes to pour a bowl of cereal. There is a verse written on his box of frosted flakes. You need to repent. You send him text messages all day long, a verse is speaking about the fires of hell. Stop. You need the picture. Not that you shouldn't share scriptures with your unbelieving husband, but instead of nagging or criticizing and preaching to your husband 24-7, a wife should simply set a godly example, showing him the power and beauty of the gospel through, the, through its effect in her own life. And Peter's saying there is a possibility through the way that you live your life that your spouse might just get saved. When, verse 2, they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. That word chaste refers to purity. It speaks of, of conduct free from carnality. And so the godly woman is one whose life is marked by holiness and purity in her conduct and in her motives. Her behavior resembles that of Christ so that wherever she goes, people see Jesus in her, even in her own house. Proverbs 31, 12, great verse of this woman towards her husband that she does him good and not evil all the days of her life. I like that. Proverbs 20, 12, 14 says, an excellent wife is a crown of her husband, but she who causes shame is like rottenness to his bones. Listen, humility, love, moral purity, kindness, respect, they're the most powerful means a woman has for winning her husband to the Lord. So how do you accomplish that? Well, Peter tells us, look now at verses 3 and 4. He says, But not letting your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. The word for adornment comes from the Greek word cosmos. It means to, to put in order, to arrange. Peter's emphasis, once again, is on priority. What is the most important thing here? Peter says your focus should be on the inward beauty, not the outward beauty. Ladies, you can spruce yourself up and deck yourself out, but nothing will make your husband take notice of you more than a gentle and quiet and submissive spirit. Now understand this in no way advocating neglecting yourself physically, letting yourself go. Doesn't say you shouldn't wear any jewelry or put any makeup on. Out of the immortal words of J. Vernon McGee, if the bar needs painting, paint it. I agree, if the bar needs painting, paint it. Paint the house. But then go inside it and furnish it with holiness and kindness. Deck it out with character and godliness and self-control. That's the point that Peter's making. The focus is on balance. And in finding that balance, it can be difficult because the way our culture is. I mean, every commercial you see today, lose 30 pounds in 30 days or how to have younger-looking skin in 14 days, or how this new miracle makeup removes wrinkles. Always that promise, that allure of beauty and betterness and miracles. Peter says, hey, it's fine to, to look good, but get that spiritual makeover. It's that inward beauty that really counts. One of my daughter's professor at Bible college put it this way, good looks don't last, but good cooking do. <laughs> I like that one. 
But notice the kind of inward beauty that Peter's talking about in verse 4. It's the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Think about that word incorruptible. Because outward beauty, it's corruptible, right? The fashion industry knows this. The beauty industry depends on this one thing, youth, right? Youth. You know, last year's models are, are today's unemployed. <laughs> but incorruptible beauty, it's different. Incorruptible beauty doesn't rely on mascara or lip gloss or eyeshadow. Incorruptible beauty makes a woman look and be more beautiful as the years go on. You see, you can be stunning on the outside, but ugly on the inside. Solomon puts it this way in Proverbs 11:22, as a, a ring of gold in a swine's snout, so is a lovely woman who lacks discretion. <laughs> Better is Pro- Proverbs 31:30, which says, "Charm is deceitful and beauty is passing, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised." That's incorruptible beauty. One who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Peter calls it the, the hidden person of the heart. Do you know that we all have one of those? We all have that hidden person of the heart. Married or not married, you all have it. The hidden person of the heart is the real you. Your reputation is what people perceive you to be. Your character is the real you, that hidden person of the heart. That's who you are when nobody's watching, nobody's looking. We all have that hidden person of the heart. What Peter's suggesting, what the Bible is mandating, is that we as Christian believers, male or female, should be really concerned about that hidden person of the heart. Think about this. What if we spend as much time on the hidden person of the heart as we do on the outward person in the mirror? Think about how long it took you just to get dressed to come to church this morning. I'm sure some of you went through all this, kind of the same routine. You woke up, you got your coffee, you, you showered for us guys. You know, some of you shaved, at least I did. And you, you tried on clothes, you fixed your hair, what Lily have, and you put on your outfit, and, and then you were done. Maybe for the ladies, you know, you, you had a little more time deciding, a little more trouble deciding and you tried on this outfit and that didn't look good and that outfit that tried on the third outfit and said okay this one works then you ask your husband does this look okay and your husband rightly responded it looks great even if it didn't that's what he said so finally you're all dressed and you make one last glance in the mirror and you go we look good <laughs> and then you're getting ready to leave and you have one last look and, and then all you know kind of sideways middle of the mirror look you know yeah yeah okay we're ready to go out the door okay now, tally up all that time in showering and shaving and dressing. Do you spend that much time and energy on the hidden person of the heart? Here's a great test. Do you spend more time in the mirror than you do in God's Word? Reading God's Word, praying, seeking the Lord. Imagine how beautiful you would be on the inside if you did. See, your real beauty is going to be seen in the internal person, who you are on the inside. True beauty is from the heart, and it grows more wonderful as the years go by. True beauty for the wife in marriage relationship, Peter says in verse 4, is the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. Now, before you picture in your mind this gentle and quiet spirit, meaning that you're some kind of doormat to be walked all over, let me explain what the word gentle means here. It means meekness, not weakness. Meekness means power under control. It speaks of strength of character, a strong self-control of elegance and dignity. Again, back to the book of Proverbs 31:25, we read the Proverbs woman. She is clothed with strength and dignity, and she laughs without fear of the future. In other words, she is, is inwardly clothed with strength of character and confidence. Meekness is that inner strength that comes from being confident in who you are in Christ. 
It's realizing that inner beauty that counts the most. It results in humility and gentleness with others. The idea here is that of self-control. Not flying off the handle and doing or saying something that you know you're going to regret later that's going to cause even more conflict. The godly woman is a woman of character and self-control. Peter says that is precious in the sight of God. And then he draws our attention to some examples, specifically Sarah. Look at verse 5 and 6. For in this manner in former times the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. So Peter finishes up this section on, on wives by pointing to Sarah as an example of a godly, submissive wife. Now, I don't think that any wife here is going to follow Sarah's example and call their husbands Lord, unless they're English, Lord Charlie or something like that. But the point is, it's the attitude of the heart. Treating your husband with respect, and he'll, I mean, he'll grab the moon for you. There's nothing he won't do. I read a story of two politicians who were embroiled in a fiery debate. One shouted at his foe, What about those powerful special interest groups that control and manipulate you? The politician who was under attack shouted back, Now wait just a minute. You leave my wife out of this. Listen, a wife does have powerful influence over her husband, but a smart wife will use it to build them up, not to tear them down. Peter is saying the believing wife who submits to Christ and to her husband and who cultivates a meek and quiet spirit will never have to be afraid. In other words, you may be living with a real jerk of a husband, but the Lord is going to watch over you even if your unsaved spouse creates problems and difficulties for you. So hang in there if you're married to an unbeliever. Let Jesus' light shine before them. Heck, hang in there if you're married to a believer that acts like an unbeliever. Shine Jesus before them as well. And just maybe by your actions and your love towards Him, and you have to see Christ in you, they may cause a change in their heart. And they may just, in fact, come to Christ. So, number one, the wife's responsibility towards her husband. Number two, verse seven, the husband's responsibility towards his wife. We're all out of time this morning, so God bless you guys. And uh... No, we got time. Look at verse seven. Husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. So Peter, Peter gives a, a husband a few things here to consider about being a loving husband. First and foremost, Peter says in verse 7, Husbands likewise dwell with them with understanding. There's sort of a man going to the doctor concerned about his wife's hearing. The doctor says, Stand behind her and say something and tell me how close you are when she hears you. The man goes home, sees his wife in the kitchen cutting carrots on the countertop, about 15 feet away, says, Honey, what's for dinner? Nothing. He gets halfway to her and repeats the same question. Nothing. Very concerned, he gets right behind her and asks her again, what's for dinner? She turns around and says, for the third time, I said, beef stew. Listen, men, if God's word tells us as husbands we're to dwell with them with understanding, then we need to listen to him the first time. God would not call us to do something that we are not able to do. To dwell with them with understanding speaks of being completely at home with her and close, comfortable relationship with her. Now, at times, this can be such a challenge. Now, why is that? Well, let me point out three specifically things why. First, it can be a challenge to dwell with them with understanding because we're just wired differently. As men and women, we need to understand those differences. You know, our, our wives, women in general, they're like fine-tuned sports cars. Very sleek, very sensitive. Their power and their strength is inwardly, as we looked at. 
incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Very powerful and just kind of hums down the road. Men on the other, other end of that, man, we're monster trucks with hemis, you know, like Ben Stowe's truck. You know, you hear it a mile away. <laughs> what you see is what you get. Men generally are not real sensitive, just kind of running things over. You know, if the kid gets hurt, oh, come on, get up, shake it off, be a man, son. But, Dad, I'm only three years old. Where's the mom? Oh, baby, poor sweetheart, come here to mom and let me help you. But, Mom, I'm 30 years old, you know. <laughs> We're just made differently. But that's okay because that's how God made us. And we need to understand that about our wise men and not expect them to be different than who, who they are. In fact, often God will balance out a marriage so that the husband needs what the wife has in her personality, and she likewise needs his good qualities. You know, an impulsive husband often has a very patient wife and help keeps him out of trouble. It's been described this way. The husband is the thermostat in the home, setting the emotional and spiritual temperature, while the wife is often the thermometer, letting him know what the temperature is. Both are necessary. Listen, the husband who understands his wife's feelings and thought processes, what makes her tick, what makes her ticked off, will not only make her happy, but will also make his life so much easier. And he himself will grow in the Lord and help his children live in a home that honors God, that there's peace in the home. Now, the second reason dwelling with a wife with understanding can be difficult because in our society, we are just plain too busy. In many marriages, there could be a lack of understanding because you're never spending any time together. We can become so busy in our own little world of work and ministry and friends and whatever that we're oblivious to the needs of our spouse. How do we fix that? By spending time together. You know, maybe carve out a date night at least once a week. Actually, the best way to know your wife better is by spending time in the Word together, talking about what God has shown you in your devotion or talking about what God spoke to you to your heart through a Bible study that you listen to. Third reason it can be difficult for us as husbands in understanding our wives is because we're not honoring them as God called us to do. Peter tells us we're to give honor to our wives, he says in verse 7, as to the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life. Men, do you honor your wife? Giving honor to the wife means to hold of high value, money paid, esteem of the highest degree, a precious price. The thought is is of of a priceless, precious, delicate vase. Does that describe your feelings about your wife? Do you hold her in high esteem? Do you value her? Do you recognize that she is a gift from God to you? Peter says, honor her as a weaker vessel. Despite all the feminist rhetoric and propaganda that we hear today, most women are gentler, more fragile physically and emotionally than most men. Certainly there are exceptions, but, but it's true, generally true. Peter calls it weaker, but women are weaker than, than men, only as, as like crystal stemmers, weaker than a plastic coffee mug. Mug is heavier, more durable, easier to knock about, but the finery and the fragility of the crystal makes it more valuable. The wife brings that tenderness and gentleness to a family that a husband lacks. Peter is telling us to honor our wife for her sensitivity. Think about this. When a female china back crab molts and sheds her shell. It takes several days for a new shell to harden. The sleeves are extremely vulnerable. Yet for those several days, the male crab covers her with his body. She attaches herself to his belly. He carries her until she's once again able to protect herself. Man, there are times when your wife becomes vulnerable. She can be a little bit crabby and she needs your help. 
She needs you to cover her and carry her. That's what it means to honor the wife as a weaker vessel. And then Peter adds, as being heirs together of the grace of life. Listen, she's not only your wife, but she's also God's girl. Don't treat her as your servant, but as a sister in Christ. And for very good reason that your prayers may not be hindered, Peter says. Peter says, not treating your wife the way you should is going to hinder your prayers. And it does. It does. You ever gotten into an argument with your wife, man, and you go to lay in bed and you go, hey, we need to pray. All right. God bless our sleep. Amen. <laughs> and you're over, you know. Or you go to pray and you know things are not right between you and your then it's hard to pray. There's apprehension in approaching God. Again, if you had an argument with your wife and you go to pray with your kid and you lay them down for bed, I tell you from experience, it's hard to pray. There's apprehension in approaching God. Why? Because our Father knows our hearts and He knows what's best for us and He will whisper to our hearts in prayer, you need to deal with this area in, in your life with your wife. You need to honor her and you're not. Same way to the wives. God will speak to your heart. You need to make this right. Submit to your husband as unto the Lord. Now, maybe you're a guy and thinking this makes sense. I realize I'm not honoring and cherishing my wife. I'm not dwelling with her in understanding. Or you're the wife that says, okay, I need to let him lead and let him be the spiritual leader in my home. I know that. But there's that temptation to say, I will as soon as he does. Well, I'll change as soon as she does. Listen, it doesn't work that way. You, would, you do what God has called you to do first, regardless of what the other person does or doesn't do. You have the opportunity right now to be that loving husband right here, right now, because we have no guarantees for tomorrow. You have the opportunity right now to love your husbands the way God intended you to love them right now. Don't wait. But the longer you do wait, the deeper and deeper the hole gets until you can't get out. You know, it's like the person that catches on fire. What are we taught? Stop, drop, and roll. In the same way, you want to protect your marriage. Stop the way you're going. Drop to your knees and surrender to the Lord and roll. Call in the name of the Lord today. Ask Him for a fresh feeling of His Holy Spirit and, and, and He will do that work in your life. If you just surrender to Him, do what God's Word has told us to do. In the same way, maybe you're here this morning and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ. Let me share with you this. Before any marriage can work, you have to get your life right with Christ. I've said this many times before. If the vertical is not right, the horizontal will never be right. But when you have a right relationship with Christ, that will enable to have you that right relationship with your spouse. And then every other relationship. In fact, if you don't know Christ today, it's time to fireproof your life. Stop, drop, and roll. It works the same way. Stop the direction you're going in sin. Drop your knees in repentance. And believe that the stone was rolled away. Jesus rose from the dead because he paid the price for your sin through his death. And now you can have new life in him. God will save you from the fires of hell if you just come and give your life to him. Let me tell you, folks, time is short. Now is the time to come to Christ like never before. It's getting late. And here's why. As I promise, I wanted to share with you a little bit about what's going on between Ukraine and Russia and right now, answer the question, does this have anything to do with Bible prophecy? Well, the short answer is, is indirectly, yes, it does. For the long answer, you really need to do a study in the book of Ezekiel chapters, really 38 and 39. There, in those chapters, uh, Ezekiel predicted specific events that will uh, include Russia's future. 
But briefly, there in Ezekiel 38, there's a long list of nations that will, in the latter days, it says they're planning an attack, an invasion, not about Ukraine, but, but Israel, to which five-sixths of this Russian that invasion will be destroyed supernaturally by God. Now, none of those nations in Ezekiel 38 are called Russia. That name is not found anywhere in the Bible. However, there in Ezekiel chapter 38, they're given their original names when the first inhabitants lived there. Now, why is that? Well, because God knew over the years that the names would change and it would become confusing. So he kept their original names uh, in order to fulfill this prophecy and understand this prophecy. Briefly, and, and, and kind of going over this, Ezekiel begins in Ezekiel 28, or 38, rather, verse 2, with, uh, Son of man, set your face against Gog, who is of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. And then he goes on to list these other nations that will join in in verses 5 and 6. Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya are with them. Gomer and all his troops. Togomar from the far north and all his troops. Many people are with you. So there in this list of these uh, this attack that's going to come against Israel in the last days, first on this list is the, the word Gog. Some scholars believe Gog is... is uh, 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 is a title rather than a, than a personal name. It's like the, the title of a national leader. We read God is the prince of Russia. We would say the leader of Russia. Sometimes we only identify Russia as Russia because it sounds the same, but that's not true. There's ample evidence geographically, secular, historically, that Russia is Russia. So Gog is the prince of Russia, or we would say the leader of Russia. Now, is Putin Gog? Well, we can't say for sure. But he has certainly proven himself to the world that he's very Gog-ish, if that's the name. Just this bully punishing and killing and threatening to wipe out anyone who stands in his way. Willing to bring this world to World War III without hesitation. So very Gog-ish. So we read that Gog is the prince of Rosh, we would say the leader of Russia. Gog is from the land of Magog. Magog was also a name of Noah's, one of Noah's grandsons. Many scholars believe his descendants settled around the Black and Caspian Seas on Russia's southern border. Meshach and Tubal. Meshach is Moscow, Tubal is Tobolsk. Uh, Persia. Persia is mentioned in Ezekiel 38, verse 5. It's mentioned 35 times more in Scripture. 1935, Persia changed its name to Iran. Russia, today Russia is Iran's strongest ally and Israel's strongest enemy. Ethiopia. Ethiopia is one of the two North African nations that will join alliance against Israel with Russia Ancient Ethiopia represented the land south of Egypt. Today, that region is the modern, modern country of Sudan, another declared enemy of Israel. Libya is the only nation on Ezekiel's list that retains its ancient name today. It was founded by another of Noah's grandsons. Then you got Gomer and Togomar. According to Genesis 10, 2 and 3, Gomer was one of Noah's grandsons. Togomar was one of his great-grandsons. Both settled in the area of modern-day Turkey today. Now, regardless of their exact modern identities, these nations are identified as a part of this alliance led by Gog, the leader of, from Russia, that will come in the last days against Israel. Russia and Turkey will lead from the north. Iran will join from the east. Sudan and Libya will press in from the south. Now, again, God will ultimately supernaturally wipe out five-sixths of this invading army. So how does this play in the prophecy and Russia coming against Ukraine right now, what's going on over there? Well, this current invasion of Russia into Ukraine is not fulfillment of Ezekiel 38 and 39, but it certainly can lead to it. It's interesting to me that, that a day before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Russia's 
UN envoy Dmitry Polanski in a statement to the UN said, quote, Russia doesn't recognize Israel's sovereignty over Golan Heights that are part of Syria. And just like Russia said that they didn't recognize Ukraine's sovereignty over Luhansk and Donetsk five days ago, now Russia has control over it. We see how they operate. Again, to say that what is happening now is not the fulfillment of Ezekiel 38 and 39 yet. It certainly could lead to that, but it's not here yet. But know this, Jesus said in Luke 21, 28, when you begin to see these things happen, look up, because your redemption draws near. Here's the bottom line. Bible prophecies are being fulfilled in our lifetime. It seems like we're seeing it happening more and more in real time closer together, as the scriptures say it would be, as a woman getting ready to give childbirth, those contractions get closer and closer together. So what should we do? We need to look up and remember that God is sovereign, God is in control, and more than anything, we as a church need to be praying. Be praying for the people of Ukraine, the families. You know, I I looked at quite a few different stories that's going on in Ukraine right now, and, and it brought me to tears. I mean, I, I can't even, I, I don't want to even share them with you because I don't want to break down here at this pulpit. Horrible atrocities, horrible things that are happening there. So we need to pray for the people of Ukraine, the families. We need to be praying for the church there, our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Pray for the, for the Christians. I read of a, of a man, he's a, 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 a leader there in, in Ukraine, and he says, you know, he got up in the morning and they've captured some 200 of the Russian soldiers. And he says, they're boys. They're not men. They're in the early 20s. And, and, and he says, from the looks on their face, they're going, what are we doing here? I don't want to be in this war. It, it breaks your heart. We need to be praying, praying for the missionaries that are still there. I've read of missionaries that, that said, that we're staying. We're going to stay. They, they sent their, their, their kids to the west side, and the, some of these are staying there in the capital that the, the Russians are heading towards. But we're going to stay. We need to pray for the protection of those folks. Pray for the protection of those fighting against the Russian aggression. I mean, the, the, the citizens are picking up arms now, wanting to fight against them. Pray that the, this, this would end quickly. Pray that our, our God would give our leaders wisdom as they're, they're making very important decisions in the days ahead. One final thing, folks. Jesus is coming soon. We need to be ready. Have our houses in order, our marriages in order. Be filled with the Spirit of God oil in our lamps, keep them burning so we can say, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. Lord, we do pray for our marriages. Lord, we pray that you would bless our marriages for our wives, Lord, that that we can, as your word tells uh, the wives, to submit to the husbands as unto you, Lord. And for us as men, Lord, that we would dwell with our wives with understanding, love them. Lord, as Christ, you love the church. And gave yourself for us. Lord, we pray for the people of Ukraine, the families that are, that are being affected by this upheaval. Lord, the Christians especially. Lord, give them hope. Lord, help them to keep their eyes focused on you. Lord, use us for a time of great evangelism. That many lives would come to faith in you during this situation. Lord, we pray for many of the Calvary Chapel missionaries that are there. And all the missionaries that are there. Lord, protect them. Give them wisdom and when to, when to flee and when to stay. Lord, we pray for a quick end to this conflict. Lord, I pray, finally, if there's anyone here that has yet to surrender their heart and life to you. 
Lord, help them to see that now is the time for salvation. Today is the day. Help them to give their life to you this morning. Well, heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. Is there anyone here you want to give your life to Jesus Christ today? You want to be born again today? If that's your desire, would you just raise your hand so I can pray for you this morning? You want to be born again today? You want to give your life to Jesus today? Just raise your hand so I can pray for you. Again, Father, we thank you that we can spend this time together being encouraged, being strengthened from your word. Help us now, Lord, to go our way this week and, and, Lord, bring to our remembrance the things we've learned, things we've studied. Lord, help us to bring honor and glory to you in all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.